The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And we continue our study this evening of the Holy Spirit. It's been several weeks since our last message on this. I think it was before I went uh, to the conference and uh, a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago or something like that. And we're continuing the study this evening and our purpose in this whole study now up to 11 lessons, 11 messages, and it will go further, is that we might get a better understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and uh, to understand and realize that he is the real life force behind our Christianity. We depend upon the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that we think about Christ. We think about what Jesus did for us. And uh, if you're saved, a Christian, you can't help but be so thankful for what Jesus did in coming here to give his life for us. Richard just sang about it. And we're so thankful for what Christ did. You, you uh, know about the Father and you think about him and the great love that he had in sending his own son into the world. But maybe we don't think so much about the Holy Spirit, um, and that's somewhat by design, because what the Holy Spirit never does, he never seeks to exalt himself. He spends all of his power, and if you wanted to put it this way, energy, although God is not necessarily bound by what we think of as energy, but he spends, his time is spent magnifying Jesus Christ. That, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He's to show us Jesus Christ. But that does not mean that we are to ignore the Holy Spirit or to act like he isn't present or uh, not know that he is actually doing something in our lives and in the world to do and, and does, uh, is working in us and he's in the world to do something with us. So we don't want to be guilty of ignoring the Holy Spirit or of this, and that is claiming the Holy Spirit does what he does not do. That's where our lesson falls tonight, in that category, what the Holy Spirit does not do. Now, we have talked previously about how the Holy Spirit is a person, how that he is deity, how he is God's agent in the world. And this subject tonight, the fourth part of our lesson, is the Holy Spirit is abused. The Holy Spirit is abused. Now, I'd like you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And this is one of those really hot texts for those who believe in charismatic gifts. And we're going to work our way through most of this chapter this evening, not all of it, uh, not all of these 25 verses. But if you look at verse number 1, uh, the Apostle Paul is writing, he says, follow after charity, and that we recognize in our King James Version meaning love. Follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that ye may prophesy. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the Spirit he speaketh mysteries. But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification, and exhortation, and comfort. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself, but he that prophesieth edifieth the church." Now, since the early part of the 20th century, there have been a few misinterpreted texts concerning the spiritual gifts, 
And these texts have become the main foundational uh, bases, the, the foundational scriptures for the charismatic movement. Now, charismatic comes from the word charis, uh, variously translated in, the, in our King James Bible as grace, sometimes translated as favor. And a little over a hundred years ago, there, there were a number of denominations that started to make the spiritual gifts that we have outlined in Scripture, the miraculous spiritual gifts, that they made that a part of their, that, that really is their trademark. That's the main emphasis of their teaching. At first, the movement was looked upon as nothing but foolishness, something very bizarre, something very mixed up. But over time, as they kept teaching these doctrines, and as we go through the 20th century... Um, their teachings did not become so uncommon any longer. They began to be accepted into mainline denominations, and so it stepped out of groups like the Pentecostals and the Assemblies of God that we have today. And the charisma, the charismatic gifts can be found in Episcopalian churches, in Methodist churches, in Roman Catholic churches, and even in some Baptist churches. And the movement is really just a strong testimony to Satan's power to deceive people. Now, all of these people that are involved in this and all these bizarre happenings that go on in these churches, all of them claim that they're actually working under the power of the Holy Spirit, that this is God's Holy Spirit directing them in what they do. But I don't believe that the Holy Spirit wants any part of it, that he's not taking credit for it. He wants nothing to do with this because... It is actually attributing the works of Satan to the Holy Spirit. That's what we call blasphemy. The charismatic movement has become one of the fastest growing factions of Christianity, especially in third world countries, or as Gary has taught me to say better, developing countries. Uh, It's really become a just a, a really fast wildfire type of growth in these other countries, and where missionaries that we would send out that their, that their hottest contentions would be against pagan religions, now they find themselves up against this, a perversion of Christianity known as the charismatic movement. At one time, the United States was the chief exporter of the true gospel of Jesus Christ, but what's happened in the last... 30 or 40 years that the United States has become the chief exporter of this type of false doctrine. And so it's caught on in other places of the world. And you go to these other countries and you find this is really a problem that true Christian ministers are trying to combat with the gospel of Christ. In Seoul, South Korea, there's the largest church in the world that has over 500,000 members and it is a charismatic church. And in our country, the airways have become so pervasive with this that Christian broadcasters will hardly let anyone who takes a very strong stance against the charismatic movement to even have a show, a radio program on their stations. Now, they're they're driven by, whether you knew, knew this or not, but most of the Christian broadcasting companies are driven by money. And so they want to keep things going and they want to keep the money flowing in. And so they want to keep this thing alive and they don't want somebody to come in and upset that apple cart and that and all that money that flows in. And so they've created a sort of a of a uh, some type of a discrimination 
is what you could call it, discrimination against those of us who would teach the true gospel of Jesus Christ and would refute those kinds of ideas. Now, what that's done is to allow the charismatics teaching to go unchallenged. And so the monster just keeps getting bigger and bigger, and those of us that preach against it are considered to be divisive against Christianity in general, against the body of Christ, as they would call it. We're the divisive ones because we will not accept that what they do is the work of the devil. It's the work of Satan. Now, they say that what we're doing is fighting against an obvious outpouring of the Holy Spirit's power. What I see it as, the acceptance of all this, is the inevitable buildup of the announcement of the Antichrist. Now, if you wondered wonder why people are so attracted to the charismatic movement, there's really one main reason, and that is a faith that you can see is better than one you can't see. That's what the natural heart thinks. That's what people think. If they can see something, if they can be involved in something, if something can be demonstrated to them, then their faith is going to be greater than what they can see. And did you know that's precisely how the Antichrist will work? That he'll be terribly convincing because of what? Signs and wonders. Things that he will claim are actually the works of God, which are the works of Satan. And he will deceive people with signs and wonders and will cause millions of people to flock to him as their savior. Now that's a problem, isn't it? It's a problem that we have to combat. So what do we do? Well, first of all, we have to trust in the Lord. Nothing happens that he doesn't allow to happen. Everything that goes on happens with his permission. That doesn't mean that he approves of it. But I think it's part of what God does in setting up the world for the reaping that's going to come. He allows man to go along in his sinful perversions, and he's setting up the world for the reaping that will come. The second thing that we need to do is we need to go back to the Bible and the correct interpretations of it and not let charismatics dominate the text of Scripture by us not knowing what the Scriptures actually mean. So we have to go back to the Word of God and not accept the erroneous interpretations. Now, in the last message, and that that was long ago, and you probably don't remember it all, but we talked then about how scripturally and historically we have proof that the miracle gifts have ceased. Even in the first century, we, we, we could see by looking at Scripture that that was not a normal pattern for New Testament Christians, that the gifts were used when and where God allowed them to be used, and I actually think that there's proof there that the gifts weren't even used except in the presence of one of the apostles of Jesus Christ. That's a personal opinion, and I think it's backed up by Scripture. Maybe you disagree with that, but that's what it appears to me. So we look at this text in 1 Corinthians, and this is one of the main ones that the charismatics go to to prove the miracle gifts. Now, last time we looked at chapter 13, and we saw there some some very clear statements that said that tongues would cease as well as the other miracle gifts. And as we move into chapter 14, Paul strongly emphasizes here the Corinthians' misuse of gifts and how they had elevated them above the most significant gift that God has given, and that is the preaching of the Word of God. Now, interestingly, the the gift that Paul exalts is the one that charismatics think so little about or care so little about. They hold no actual premium on the Word of God or on preaching, but they rather go off into these, these 
aberrant interpretations of Scripture and they move through all of these wild and crazy annex and claim that's the evidence of the Holy Spirit's power. So what does Paul say about that in this text? Well, let's read the first four verses again. Follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that ye may prophesy. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the spirit he speaketh mysteries. But that prophet, but he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue, listen, edifieth himself. But he that prophesieth edifieth the church. Now, when we speak of miracle gifts, there are several that are given in Scripture. But the one that really stands out today among the charismatics is the gift of speaking in tongues. They are really big in their ministries on speaking in tongues, although there are the other things, the healing and all of those types of things. But tongues is the real backbone of their movement. And so if we can break their back, so to speak, on this particular issue, then all the rest of the nonsense of the miracle gifts fall with this. Now, I mentioned the last time that charismatics use the gift of tongues as a qualifier for a higher spiritual life. And that some of them even go as far to say that speaking in tongues is the evidence of your salvation. If you don't, then you're not saved. Now, their doctrine puts such a heavy emphasis on speaking in tongues that what we ought to see in Scripture is that tongue stands out as the real proof of New Testament Christianity. But we notice in this passage that that Paul does not overly emphasize the importance of speaking in tongues. In fact, he says here that there's a greater preference as for another activity, that it'd be far better for everyone to have this other thing than anyone should have the gift of tongues. So what does he talk about, that it's far greater than tongues? Well, he's teaching these Corinthians to covet preaching really earnestly covet preaching. And that's the contrast that we find in this passage. It's speaking in tongues versus the preaching of the Word of God. Now, just like uh, today, the gift that was most abused in the Corinthian church was speaking in tongues, and they wrongfully put that above all the other gifts that God had given. And so Paul uses this chapter to put tongues into perspective. And interestingly, this church that thought that they were so spiritual, that they were so increased with knowledge, that they were so close to the Lord because they exercised this spiritual gift is actually the church that Paul calls, he teaches throughout this book, is they are the most immature church that he had to deal with. Now remember, this is the only church that Paul dealt with in this way And they're the poster child, you might say, for charismatic churches today. Because every error that we find today, the Corinthians also had concerning tongues. Paul called them a carnal, immature church. This is what he said in the third chapter. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither now are ye able. This is a weak, immature church that was doing what? Practicing the gift of tongues. Now, their problem was that they put that spiritual gift above the primary thing, which is the preaching of the Word of God. And if they preached the Word of God as they should, Paul never would have had to address this. We wouldn't even be reading about it today. But they fell down on this, and that's the preaching of God's Word. 
Now, in verse number one, we see here that that Paul talks about prophesying. And there he's not speaking of of the ability to tell far-off distant events, because that wouldn't have been of any immediate help for the church. But there he speaks of prophesying in the sense that we talk about preaching. That it's the ordinary preaching of the Word of God where the preacher stands and he gives the text and the meaning of the text and tells people how Scripture relates to their lives. And, of course, the only Bible that they had was Old Testament Scripture. And so what they were looking at in the Old Testament was primarily this, was the exaltation of Christ, that the fulfillment of all the promises that we have in the Old Testament of what Christ would do. And that's what the Old Testament did. It always pointed to Christ, and the purpose of preaching should be that. We're going to have to arrive at what Christ did, at the cross of Christ, in our preaching every time that we get up to proclaim the Word of God. That's where we're going. We're always headed. Spurgeon said this. He said, I start to preach in my text, and I'm always headed headed straight for the cross. That's where we have to go. Preaching puts us there. Preaching edifies the church. Preaching lifts up the individual. Preaching is helpful to us. But on the other hand, you see in verse number 4, he says that those who speak in tongues edify no one but self. And so I guess you could say that if you want to have a selfish ministry, then the best way to go about it is to start being a tongue talker. Start using this spiritual gift if it existed today. But no one's going to have any idea what you're saying. And so the only possible benefit, even if it was real today, is that it would benefit you. It doesn't serve any purpose for the cause of Christ Not in general. It doesn't serve the church in general. So why would you want to put that up front ahead of the preaching of God's Word? Now, here in the third and fourth verses, we find four important purposes for preaching. The first one is actually implied. You don't see it in the text. But preaching is for education. And then next is edification, then exhortation, then consolation. Those are the four things that we do in preaching. Education, edification, exhortation, and consolation. First, preaching is for education, because that's the way you learn the doctrines of God's Word. Now, we learned a long time ago, those of you that have been here for a while and went through the Ephesians series as we discussed those, uh, those great chapters that Paul wrote, we learned then that doctrine rules our practice. Right doctrine yields right practice. And to the extent that a Christian is off in his doctrine, he will be off in his practice. And there we find the great problem, the charismatic churches, since they deal very little with the doctrines of God's Word, and since they don't study doctrine as they should, they're very confused about the Holy Spirit. Now, you might think, well, you're you're just talking off the top of your head. You don't know what you're speaking about. Sit down sometime with somebody out of these charismatic churches and find out what they know really about the Word of God. It's not important to them. Now, I'm not particularly talking about their preachers because they go to school, they may learn some things, but it doesn't translate into the pew. Trust me on that. These people know very, very little about the Word of God. Preaching is for our education. Secondly, preaching is for edification. Edify means to build up, and preaching is the way that we build up God's church. Both Paul and Peter compare the church to a living building. Peter says that you're living stones built up into a spiritual house. And so, if you want to be built up a believer, what do you need? You need the preaching of God's Word. You need to sit under God's Word. You need to listen to the preacher because there's where you're going to get 
the nourishment for your soul. And when God's Word is preached, you feast on that. It's like bread for your soul. It's nourishment for you. And if you absent yourself from the preaching of God's Word, you are going to be a spiritually weak Christian. Just like eating food. You don't eat enough. If you absent yourself, if you don't come to the dinner table when your wife says come, your mom says come, or whatever, if you don't come, pretty soon you're going to get very, very weak. And that's the way it is with the preaching of God's Word. You don't come, you're going to be a weak Christian. So you need preaching to be personally edified. Thirdly, preaching is for exhortation. Preaching is the way that we encourage people to walk with God. Through preaching, we encourage people to stand for God. Sometimes we forget about that in everyday life, and so we come to church to be reminded of this. We're, We're exhorted to earnestly contend for the faith, especially living here in this very wicked part of the country. We need to contend for the faith. And preaching is for your encouragement to do that. And then, fourthly, preaching is for your consolation. How do we deal with people that are distressed and burdened down with all the temptations of Satan? Jesus told his disciples, this was not going to be an easy life that you live. This is going to be very difficult for you. And so how do we deal with people that have come to the place where You just don't know how you're going to make it another day, and you're so tempted to give up. You know, I love the way that the Apostle Paul addresses that. And if you just wanted to look in your Bible, we'll have it on the screen. But just a couple of pages over in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 3, he says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. Let me ask you something. Had any of those people ever personally met Christ? Well, not in a physical way they hadn't. They had met him by faith. But where did they hear about him? The word of God. They were spoken the word of God. So the word of God is for our consolation. So do you see how preaching is beneficial? Education, edification, exhortation, consolation. You get all of that from preaching. And what Paul is doing here, he's contrasting tongues. And he says that the gift of tongues is really no good for those things. Tongues are not intended for those things, and yet those things are the most important things in the church. That's what church is all about, those things. Reaching people with the gospel, educating them in the faith, encourage them to, uh, encouraging them in their work for Christ, giving them hope in hopeless situations, those are all effects of preaching, and you get none of that from speaking in tongues. And so no wonder Paul puts the preaching at the top of the list as far as the good of the church. And he ranks speaking in tongues. You know where he actually puts speaking in tongues? Dead last. It's down on the bottom. Even in the time when spiritual gifts like this were being used, the Apostle Paul put it on the bottom of all the spiritual gifts. Now, I want to go on because Paul is really set here to deal with this big Corinthian problem of tongues. And the Corinthians were all wrong about it, so he goes into further explanation. They're all mixed up about what the Holy Spirit is doing, and so are people today. And so he tells them to, to, to covet preaching, but he also tells them to put away all of this confused speaking. 
Get rid of that. Put away confused speaking. And so in the next verses, he goes into the abuse of tongues, and he gives here a few illustrations of how tongues can do more harm than good if they're not practiced correctly. Now, there are two illustrations that he gives. Notice verse number 6. Now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine? Well, that sounds a whole lot like we just, what we just covered, doesn't it? What will it profit you if you get no education, no edification, no exhortation, and no consolation? And what Paul is setting them up here for is the argument is that what is spoken has to be understood or it's no good for you. For it to be good, you have to understand it. And even though he as an apostle should come to them speaking in a tongue, what good would that do them if they did not know what he was saying? How is that good for them? So he says, for it to be good, you must understand it and it must have some revelation in it. Now, that's a very important point. It has to have some revelation in it. Now, let's stop there for just a moment because this is just so critical to the argument. Let's review this. What is one of the reasons that tongues are no longer valid for today? One reason is because God is not giving new revelation. Nobody is going to stand up and say, I got a new revelation from God because God is not giving new revelations. Everything that God has for us has been already put down in the written Word of God. And you can read that, and you can understand it, and the Holy Spirit can show you what it's all about. And so what do you add to a complete revelation? Either you believe the Bible is good enough for you, or you don't. What are you going to get from uh, when you already have complete revelation? So what am I going to say in a tongue that's not already in the Word of God? And if they say something that's not in the Word of God, that just proves that it's from Satan. And when Paul wrote this, the New Testament wasn't yet complete. All the revelation hadn't yet been given. And so when Paul spoke, he spoke new revelation. But today the Bible is complete and there's nobody that can say, I have a new revelation from God. If you have a revelation from him, you got it the same way that I got it. And that comes from the Word of God. It was in the Word of God all along. So Paul says, what will this tongue profit unless there is a revelation? And then he says, there must be knowledge in it. There must be some prophesying in it. There must be some doctrine in it. And interestingly enough, isn't that what we find right here in this? All of those things are right here in the Word of God. All the knowledge we need, all the revelation we need, all the doctrine that we need, it's all right here in this book. In fact, the Apostle Paul said it himself, that this book is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man can be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And so if you're thoroughly furnished unto all good works through the Word of God, what are you going to get from something else? Either you're furnished or you're not. Either you got it or you don't. The Word of God is good enough for all of that that we need. So it seems that what Paul is doing here, he's ruling out any possible reason for tongues today. What good would they do? Because he's already got, God's already got in the Word all of these bases covered. But he gives them illustrations about how wrong that their practice is. Look at verse number 7. And even things without life giving sound whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known 
what is piped our heart. Now, several years ago, I preached on this subject, and I gave you an illustration, and I want to show you that and show you what Paul's first illustration is here. Number one, what we need to look at what Paul's saying is that music must make sense. That's an illustration. And so he says, now, let's go away from the spiritual for just a moment, and let's look at something inanimate. Even in the natural world, we expect things to make sense. Let me show you something that doesn't make sense. You recognize that, don't you? I was playing the old rugged cross. Would you do that for me, Lucy? The music is all there. Just the first part of it, a little ways. Well, that's at Calvary. Well, you, did you recognize what she was playing? Okay, let's get that straight there. She's playing at Calvary. And actually, I looked at that music there in front of me, and I was got the name wrong, but I was trying to play at Calvary too. Did you recognize it when she played it? When she played that, did... The words start to come to your mind. You recognized that, so you knew exactly where that was going, and you understood everything that she played. You see, the reason that you did is because everything was in order. Everything was right where it was supposed to be. But when I was playing, you had no idea that I was playing at Calvary, and apparently I didn't either. But... uh, (laughs) You, you, you didn't know that I was playing at Calvary, and so you're not going to go home today and say, oh, it was such an inspiring service. Pastor Smith sat down at the piano and he played such beautiful music that just overwhelmed me. That's the comparison that Paul is making here. If you get up and speak all kinds of gobbledygook and you have no idea what you're saying and nobody else has, has any idea what you're saying, how does that help you? Now, you might say, well, did you know something? A spirit really got hold of him tonight. What spirit? How would you know what spirit? How would you know that's the Holy Spirit if you didn't understand anything that was going on? How could you say that's the Holy Spirit? And I would submit to you that when these people get up and do it, that nobody understands what's going on. So how do they know the Holy Spirit's doing it? The Holy Spirit guides people through the Word. He doesn't do it through nonsense that doesn't make sense. For music to be edifying, it has to make sense. God's Word is edifying, but it must make sense because the only way that you're going to know it's the Word of God is if it makes sense. You have to know what it says. You didn't know I was playing at Calvary. You see what I mean? That's the illustration Paul gives. Look at the second illustration, verse number 8. For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? Second illustration is a bugle has to make a certain sound, must give a certain sound. Now here Paul is giving us a military example. In his day, the armies didn't have 
the sophisticated communications that we have today. Today, when our armies go into battle, the battlefield commanders know exactly what's taking place. All the troops know exactly where they're supposed to go, what they're supposed to do, because all the communications are in place. But in Paul's day, they didn't have all of that. They had masses of foot soldiers. Sometimes the, the lines were miles long or a mile long. And, and the number of soldiers was a hundred deep sometimes in those armies. And in order for them to do what they were supposed to do, they had to have some kind of direction. And obviously somebody up there yelling to all this mass of people wasn't going to get it done. And so they taught them to respond to the sounds of a trumpet. And those different sounds directed them in where they were supposed to go. So a soldier had to learn which sounds from the trumpet meant what. And so there's a sound that is a command to march, and there's a sound that is a command to halt. There's a command, a sound for, to, 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 to move forward, and there's a command to retreat. And these masses of soldiers had to clearly understand what the trumpet sound was, what the blast meant, or you have half the army advancing and half the army retreating. That's the illustration for tongues. The meaning has to be so clear that nobody mistakes what's being said. And I will tell you that the charismatic army is an army in chaos. It's onward Christian soldiers and nobody knows where they're going. And maybe that's why some of them jump over the chairs instead of going around them. Nobody knows where they're going. So you have to get this, that the order for tongues as people practice them today or what they're doing, that is not biblical. Everybody has to be perfectly clear about what's being said. Or Paul says, you might as well be speaking to the air. Just speaking to hear yourself talk. And I think I used this illustration a long time ago, too. It's like Jim Croce, the brilliant Bible scholar, said, you don't spit into the wind. So there are these inanimate... You don't even know who Jim Croce is, are you? Or do you? So there's these inanimate illustrations. And he, and he brings these in to bring us to the final point of this whole discussion of what it's all about, and that is people must understand what you speak. People must understand what you speak. Now, let me remind you of something here. In the Bible times, the gift of tongues was not unintelligible language. Now, that's something that you really have to understand. The gift of tongues in Bible times was not unintelligible language. And if you read Acts chapter 2, it's very clear that what they spoke was a language that someone at that time had learned and understood that grew up with that was a native language. And so if there was Spanish at that time, which there wasn't, but if there had been, some people spoke Spanish, and so the tongue was Spanish. Some people would have spoke, spoke, uh, spoken German, and the tongue is German, or French, or Russian, and so on. And there had to be somebody there in that group that understood that language for the language to be used. So Paul means here, if I speak to you in Russian, and there's nobody here that understands Russian, what good will it do you? It has to be understood. If I stand up here and I preach in Latin, what good is it going to do? Now, conversely, if there's someone here that only speaks Latin, then the way that I minister to them is to have someone interpret what I say into Latin. But if there's only one person here who understands Latin and I speak Latin to him, then there has to be somebody here to interpret everything that I say into English because everybody needs to understand what's being said. Now look at verse number 10. There are, it may be, so many kinds of voices in the world, 
and none of them is without signification. Therefore, if I know not the meaning of the voice, I shall be unto him that speaketh a barbarian, and he that speaketh shall be a barbarian unto me. Even so ye, forasmuch as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. Now, the point that Paul is making is that there are many different languages in the world, and all of those languages have meaning. That's what verse number 10 means. That's what he's saying. There's all these voices in the world, and they all have a meaning to them. But if a person hears and he doesn't know the meaning, then I'm just like some foreigner up here jabbering away in something that they don't understand, and that serves no purpose. So Paul says, what is the point? If you're zealous to have spiritual gifts, then at least do them the way that God has commanded. Do it according to God's will and according to God's purpose. Why do we have language? Language is for communication. And if we don't communicate with it, then what good is it? In every instance in the New Testament where tongues were used, something was communicated, something is understood. There is no such thing in the Bible as unintelligible language that only God or angels understand. Look for just a moment at verse number 2. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men but unto God, for no man understandeth him. Howbeit in the Spirit he speaketh mysteries. Now look closely... Do you see the word unknown? And do you notice that the word is in italics? And we all know what that means, don't we? It means that the translators put the word in. And they do that for clarity. And there's nothing wrong with that because it, it, it clarifies things. And for centuries, people had no problem reading this and understanding what is meant by unknown. That it wasn't talking about some kind of prayer language or some kind of angelic language or some language that God speaks that men don't know, unknown simply meant to them a language that I have not yet learned. And that's all that it means. And the charismatics take off on the italicized word, a word that's not even there in the original, and they say, well, that's a heavenly language that it's talking about. And so they claim that they're speaking in a heavenly language, and they try to connect that with what Paul said in in 1 Corinthians 13, verse number 1, where he said, though I speak with the tongue of men and angels, and they make a distinction between what men speak and what angels and God speak. And that's nothing but pure foolishness. You, you study any passage that you want to in the Scriptures where angels spoke to men or where God spoke to men, what did they speak? They spoke a language that men understood, a very clear language that those people spoke. And we never have anywhere in the Word of God where it says that God spoke something that people could not understand. This is not really a part of my message, but I, I think I would have to add this, that, that God created all of this, didn't he? For his own purposes, God did all of this, and our language must have come from somewhere, and I think it's a gift from God. God gave us the intelligence, and he gave us the ability to develop these languages, and he's not going to give us something that's going to put us in chaos. 
not the way that God works. Now let me move on to the next section. We've got to do this quickly. This is a summary of, a, of the argument about understanding. Verse 13, Wherefore, let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. Remember, he's talking about known language. What is it then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. So what is it about? It's all about understanding. Now, unfortunately, the thing that's paramount if a tongue is used in the charismatics is not understanding. They're not really seeking for that. But in Paul's day and ours, a a tongue is no good. A language is no good used in the church if it is not understood. So whether you're preaching, whether you're singing, whether you're praying, doesn't matter. A tongue is useless if it's not understood The one who speaks it must understand it, and those who hear it must understand it. Verse 16, he says, Else when thou shalt bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say amen at the giving of thanks, seeing he understandeth not what thou sayest? In other words, he's saying, How can anybody say amen to what you've said? Amen means, so be it. Let it be. I agree with that. that. Amen is an expression of agreement. And some of you need to say amen more often so I know that you agree with me. Sometimes, you know, cold, dead silence means that you want to lynch me when we get out of here. You don't agree with me. But if you agree with me so far, let me hear it again. Say amen. Amen. Now, Paul says, well, how can people agree with something that they don't understand? How could they say amen to it? Verse 17, for thou verily givest thanks well, but the other is not edified. So he's saying, wow, you know, you stand up there and you make all these beautiful prayers and make all these beautiful homilies that you give, and it's really wonderful that you're so eloquent. But what good does it do if you speak in Choctaw and nobody understands Choctaw? I thank my God, verse 18, I speak with tongues more than y'all. And he's talking again about known languages that he used in his missionary journeys. Yet in the church, I had rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Now, if the charismatics would just read that part over and over and over and over and over again... He says five words spoken that you can understand it is better than 10,000 words spoken in something that you can't understand. 10,000 crazy words, folks, is no proof of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the author of confusion. And you know if the Holy Spirit desires anything, what his greatest desire is? It is that the gospel will be communicated very clearly. And you know why? Because the scripture says, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And if you can't understand what you hear, then there's never going to be any faith. And that's why preaching is so far superior to speaking in tongues. God doesn't want us to substitute anything for the preaching. Don't let anything take the place of the proclamation of the Word of God. I don't care how emotional it is. I don't care how good it looks. I don't care how much you like it. Don't put anything in the place of preaching of God's Word. And if it's not understood, don't use it. Why would we want it? I need to close. Uh, I need to stop, so we're going to stop. We'll stop for this evening. And we're going to come back next week and we'll talk a little bit more about 
the tongues issue, I have some more that I want to say that I hope will be helpful. These are, or this is in particular, an abuse of the Holy Spirit. It is an abuse of the Holy Spirit to claim that he does what he does not do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for for being here tonight and the patience of the listeners to hear what's being said. Lord, we don't, as I mentioned at the beginning, we don't have any animosity towards anyone. There's no hatred here towards anyone. We only want to declare the truth of your word. Help us to do that. Bless our people, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.